Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 10. Mark's gospel chapter 10. We will take verses 13 through 31. Should take somewhere between two and a half to three minutes to read. So you needed to know that, incidentally. (laughs) Please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark's gospel chapter 10 Verses 13 through 31. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross And follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Please be seated. Anybody time that? (laughs) Approaching Christ, that's what we are considering this morning, because there are two approaches to him. There's the the mothers with the infants, and there, of course, is the rich young ruler. And uh, the mothers, of course, had come to have their children blessed, that he would touch them and bless them, which he did. And the young man, of great wealth and authority, came to have his dedication confirmed. And we look now at verse 13 
And they brought the little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. This, they brought the little children to him, part. Well, this follows, of course, the teachings on divorce and all of the Gospels that give account the record of these exchanges. A family is to be protected. That is the idea. The word little children in the Greek indicates that they were infants and toddlers. Uh, it says here in verse 13, but, Jesus re- uh, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. They tended to be a wee bit overprotective sometimes. Uh, There were other times that Jesus certainly benefited from their uh, being protective of the crowds coming to him. Previously, they forbade an outsider from casting out demons because he wasn't part of their group. And Jesus gave a lesson on that. Later, Greeks will come to speak to Jesus, but they have to go through the apostles. And so they approach uh, Philip and say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And as is the case, Philip goes to Andrew and Andrew of course, goes to the Lord. And so, this we can't be too hard on them. They had a job to do, but sometimes they overdid it. It sounds like us. Sometimes we can be zealous to a fault. Uh, so, he certainly addresses this with them. Verse 14, But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. When Jesus saw it, well, he wasn't going to let this have a pass. There's no way. He sees the mother's coming. I want my my child just to be just ready to bless him. And the disciples said, not now, go go away, maybe later. And, of course, Christ sees this and he, he pounces on it. He's not going to let this go. Now, unfortunately, I've got to pause here. Uh, This is not about sitting in the adult service of the church. Uh, The people that do that, I think it's very unfortunate and kind of mean sometimes. Uh, But this is about bringing the child to the knowledge of Christ. And every parent needs to take heed that uh, if you are not bringing your child to Christ, God's got a problem with you. It's a big one, too. And, uh, of course, uh, we have a children's service where they can receive Christ on their level. And it is quite meaningful that way, where children's ministry is. Jesus is no more here in the sanctuary than he is in the children's area. He's just as much. Yeah, he's not, well, well, you know, you get 90% of him if you come into sanctuary, but he's only left with 10% in the children's ministry. Well, that's, of course, ridiculous. And so uh, they bring the children to him. The disciples thought that Jesus was too important to be bothered with the small children, and Jesus thought that that the children were too important and to not be brought to him. And so this is straightened out. But this comment here, of such is the kingdom of God. Within this statement, he extends salvation to the young and the impaired. Within this statement, those who cannot exercise faith, maybe they have Uh, a handicap mentally. Mentally, they're just not able to exercise faith. God knows how to deal with that in a very wonderful way. He's not saying that uh, these little ones deserve heaven. No one deserves heaven. They are sinners too. They are born in sin, but they have, again, not had a chance to exercise faith. In Genesis, God says this, uh, Abraham says this to God. 
Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? To which God would respond, you got that right, Abraham. That's right. I always do right. And so those that uh, the children that die before they are get a chance to live, maybe they die uh, before they're born, uh, or maybe they have a handicap along the way. God covers this. These will be in heaven. It's quite remarkable. He knows what he's doing, and we by faith know that he knows what he is doing. And so, not that, again, they are free from inherited sin, inherited sin, the sin from Adam, we all have that, but that they are not directly accountable as we who can exercise, of course, free will in a way that they could not. This is the case in Jonah chapter 4, the last verse of Jonah. God speaking to the prophet, rebuking him and encouraging him at the same time. He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between the right hand and their left? God is saying, There's a lot of little children in there. They don't know up from down, right from left. Should I not have mercy on them too? And he leaves it at that. We look at that and we say, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Because also, God, as much as he loves the children, he does not stop loving the children as when that child becomes old. His love does not diminish. So no matter how old you are, God loves you as much then, as he did in the beginning. In fact, Isaiah points that out. God saying, I will not forsake you when you are old. I will still be with you. And thank God for that. Verse 15, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. This is now about the adults. He is using the children as, an, as, as, as his object lesson, you could say. Uh, This is about salvation. He will then deal with serving when he gets to the rich young ruler. But uh, you cannot receive God's blessings in this life and the benefits after this life if you do not yield to God as these little children yield. This is what is coming out. The child is used to illustrate his point. Infants... Toddlers, they are really without active resistance. This is what distinguishes them from everybody else. They're not independent. They are totally dependent. God is saying, that's what I want from the sinner that comes to me. I want that sinner to depend on me. As though they were this little infant, this little toddler. And I, the parent. Infants don't fight. They don't. They really don't resist, not intentionally. They don't hate good. They don't hate. They are not at war with God and they are not at war with man. These are characteristics that he is pointing out. He be like this kid. And it would make you say, well, what is it about the child? I can't be cute again. So that cannot be it. He says, for such is the kingdom of God. Those not at war with God, not at war with man, those who are not hating, those who are not resisting, those who are not fighting, those are the ones that enter the kingdom of God. 
And yeah, we understand, Lord, when I come to you, I, I line up with all those things in my spirit. But my flesh does not cooperate. And there, of course, is the story of uh, the battle between the spirit and the flesh, as is dealt with very much in Paul's letters. Verse 16 now. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This is prophetic. This is a prophetic signature that this is Messiah. You, you couple this action with his miracles and his teachings and his virtuous life, and the surrounding, or the witnesses should have said, this man is the only man we know that is lining up with what the prophet said Messiah would be. Nobody else could do these things. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And we see him doing this right here in this chapter. He's dealing with everybody, adults and little children, the parents. He's dealing with them all as as sheep and lambs. He's loving on them. Whatever happened to these little children? What did they grow up to be? Well, we'll never know that, well, not in this life, but it is a very important question to those who hear that question asked about them. You in the, in the church, you children that are brought up in the church, Christ has laid his hands on you. When you hear the word of God preached and the, 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 the New Testament acted out around you, Christ is drawing you up in his arms. What's going to happen to you? Are you going to continue and raise your children to love the kingdom, to worship the king, or are you going to fall away? And this is a question, again, that uh, the, you should ask yourselves. What am I going to do with this Bible knowledge? I don't have to go out into the world and learn what wrong is to appreciate what God says. I can appreciate what God says to avoid what wrong is. So what are you going to do? Ball is in your court, as we would say. Verse 17, now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? I love this man. Christ did too. And over the years, I've preached on this section quite a few times. Evidently, he was someone of importance. And all three of the gospels ring in on this man, and add to the story a little bit here and a little bit there. And he is reverent to Christ, which is remarkable. He's a man of, of, of authority. He's a young ruler. He probably oversees a synagogue, a Jewish assembly, and he is wealthy. He is in his 30s, in his early 30s, as a young ruler, and to be a ruler, he'd have to be uh, over 30. Uh, Matthew tells us that he was young, and at this time in Christ's ministry, hostility from the Jewish authorities was on the increase. So for him to publicly display this reverence was, was uh, impressive. He's eager about it. He, Christ is leaving the city, he kind of runs up in front of him and gets in front of him and kneels down and shows this great respect. Now, he's not yet accepting all of the Messiahship and the deity of Christ. He's not. You know, we have to be careful. Christ lived in the days of transition. The church was not yet born. We can't, we, when we look back, we cannot look back through the eyes only 
after Pentecost. We have to remember they were still Jewish, and the church was a foreign concept as we know it now. Uh, But evidently, this man had been moved by something Jesus said or did or both. He asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Respectful, formal greeting to a religious rabbi, a teacher of the Jews. And he had material possessions, so he was not seeking uh, material prosperity. He had that already. He is coming for spiritual direction. He's quite upfront with this and unashamed about it, and so he should be unashamed about it. Nothing to be shameful. There's nothing shameful about this. But there's a basic error in what he asked the Lord. What shall I do that I may inherit? Now, typically, we do not inherit salvation, of course. It is, it is something that is a gift of God. And someone uh, inheritance is something that we receive from someone else than when they die. And uh, so there's a little there, nothing big, because it's not something that Christ draws out, but it's something we should be mindful of. We, we have this inheritance in Christ because of his death, and we receive it. There's nothing we can do. He says, what can I do to inherit? Well, you don't do, you receive an inheritance from the one deceased. Now, typically, because sometimes people put stipulations on an inheritance. Well, you have to do this, and then before you can get the money, or whatever else it is. Eternal life he brings up. Salvation of the soul. That is exactly what he is talking about. Now, eternal life is more than eternal existence. There's a difference. Everyone will exist eternally. But where? Where will you, what will your zip code be? Heaven or hell? Uh, This is uh, what it is all about. And, of course, uh, Christ alone is the way to eternal life. Rejecting Christ is the way to eternal existence. It's a story of C.S. Lewis in a, walking through a cemetery, and he sees a tombstone that says, all dressed up and nowhere to go. And Lewis comments to his friends, you wish, and that is very accurate, because there is somewhere you're going. You're all dressed up, and you are going somewhere. But through Christ alone is there eternal life. Not more than just existence. Romans 6.23, a verse we love to hear. The wages of sin is death. Death proves sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by faith we receive it, by trusting the record that that has been handed to us. This unbroken witness from Adam... Into the future, from Genesis through Revelation, Acts 4.12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is only through Jesus Christ. And so after this finite life, there is an afterlife. But will it be eternal life or eternal existence, or will it be eternal life? And that is up to the individual. Verse 18 So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now, Christ is not saying, don't call me good. He is just extracting from the man a confession, which he really doesn't get. But the apostles got the question. In fact, they got it so much, they recorded it and preserved it, and we have it. And it is uh, loaded with insight on the character and the person of Jesus Christ. 
And so what he is saying here, why do you call me good? He's saying, are you talking about relative good? Are you, are you saying that I am relatively good, rel- related to the rabbis and other good men? Or are you saying I am absolutely good, as God Almighty is absolutely good? So which one is it? And so he he doesn't really, the Lord throws it out there, and and, and he doesn't, you know, answer my question, you fool. He doesn't do anything like that. No one is good but one, he says. That is God. And he is not disowning it. He is just bringing this out. Because how many people do we come across in life that say, well, you know, I'm a good person. God's going to let me into heaven. Well, that's ridiculous. In fact, it's insulting. It's damning. Because what you are saying is that God is vicious for allowing Jesus to die such a death on the cross. And there was another way all the time. There is no other way. It is through Christ. And uh, they are either arrogant or ignorant. I'll come back to that uh, maybe. Don't want to promise you anything. You may hold me accountable. You know, we Christians, we don't want to commit. (laughs) Sarcasm. A little lighthearted, but not entirely. (laughs) Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. I love that he says, "You you know the scripture. There are Christians that act like they don't know the Bible. Can I tithe 2%? Anyway, uh, he, Christ is quoting six of the Ten Commandments here. He is quoting the second table, the two, the, we, the two tables of the commandment. The first one is between man and God. You should have no other gods before me, no idols, remember the Sabbath, you know, don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's the first table is between man and God. The second table is between a man and man in the presence of God. And that would be uh, these here. Do not commit adultery, murder, steal, bear false witness, uh, defraud. A defraud is an interpretive paraphrase of the Lord on covet. Because if you really want something, to get that, to really get it into, to become sin, you have to, you know, uh, break some rules to, to bring it about. But to possess through craftiness. And so he gives an interpretive rendering of that. And, uh, but he, he leaves out the first four because they were obvious. This man certainly honored the first four commandments. Verse 20, and he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, this is important. He says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him what to do, and he says, I've done that. See, that establishes a fact to me. The reason why I have to say this is because most commentators, I find, are very harsh to this young man. They've got him in hell. Uh, you know, they think that this is only about the salvation of the soul. There's much more here than just that. But uh, Christ told him what to do. He said, I do, I do that. But then the conversation deepens, and it deepens because of the man. Christ sort of leaves it at this, and, leaves it, and the man is the one that takes it further. So when he says in verse 20... He answered him and said, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. He's not reluctant to deal with his sin. He asked the Lord a question. He got an answer. And it, to me, it doesn't read this way. Not, there's no hostility here. In fact, the next verse will bring that out. 
Otherwise, otherwise, Jesus would have had a grand omission. He would have had a chance to deal with saving the soul and kind of ignored it. He doesn't ignore it. He dealt with it. Verse 21, it says, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and take up the cross and follow me. I'm going to try to summarize this at the end of the comments. And how helpful to the story, how meaningful to you and me, that we listen to this. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's profound. Somebody picked that up. Somebody watching, one of the witnesses, could see in the face of Christ this love just flowing out of him to this man. I'm not prepared to say Jesus loved him and then doomed him to hell. Right after that, you know, oh, you almost had it, kid, and you got the second question wrong. That's, uh, here's what one commentator said in attending to doom him. And I, I bring this up because if you have study Bibles, and you'll probably read that. And if you need me to correct them, just put them on my desk and I'll, I'll make corrections. Here's what one commentator says. He felt, Jesus, felt great compassion for this sincere truth seeker who was so hopelessly lost. You can only get that if you're a Calvinist, I guess. Then he says, God does love the unsaved. Yeah, he does. And he does something about them being unsaved. And uh, I'll open this up a little more. Now, you may disagree with me. It's okay. I've had people be wrong before. And I, I still love you. <laughs> you know, that's one of the perks of having a pulpit. You get to say those kind of things more often than others from, in an audience. So anyway, this one thing you lack said after the man said these things that I do. Now, Matthew gives us a little bit more information. And I mentioned that the, 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 the helpful to the story are the witnesses of the other evangelists, Matthew and, and Luke. Matthew chapter 19, in Matthew's account of this, when the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him. See, the man brings that up. I've done this, Lord, but I'm still empty. I'm not fulfilled. Something's missing. And then Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, that is matured, teleos in the Greek, finished. If you want to be perfected, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So now this becomes not so much an inf- uh, a discussion of eternal life, but it is present service. I've done what you said for inheritance, but I'm still lacking. Jesus says, well, you need to follow me. Get rid of that other stuff. Come follow. You want to get to the next level? Then this is what you do. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. Uh, This is, again, as I read it, not to do directly with salvation. He was saved, but like so many, he was unfulfilled. How many Christians have we met over the years that know who Jesus is, submit to that, but do nothing? They do absolutely nothing for Christ. They're still going to heaven. They're just not going first class. Okay, I couldn't think of anything else, and I felt it was a good moment to say something very witty, because I have nothing else but very witty to a kind of slow congregation. (laughs) (laughs) Selling and giving. 
will not save a single soul. Christ is not saying, if you sell your stuff, you'll get saved. Uh, that's ridiculous. And it's not New Testament theology. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. This is something other. Because then you'd have to say this to everybody. If this were the formula. His riches robbed him of availability to serve. And that is one of the big reasons why some people don't serve. They just don't have the time. They're too busy. The, the operative words, too busy. Too busy for Christ. So we've got to be careful of these things. You say, oh, now I'm getting conviction. Well, that's what part of what coming to the house of God is about, is the Lord kind of singling us out and say, listen, you won't take this from a man, but you'll take it from my word, won't you? And he lays it out the way we're doing it right now. Uh, this is why the <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> three synoptic gospels uh, are so beneficial to reconcile and harmonize the story so that we really get how the exchange took place. He says, and you will have treasure in heaven. That's rewards. He does not say, and you will get into heaven. If you sell your things, come follow me, uh, you'll get into heaven. Uh, that's not what's going on. Remembering, this is not uh, after Pentecost. This is still under the law of Moses. Uh, and he says, and come take up the cross and follow me. A direct calling to this man. He gave this calling to the twelve, and they took it. When the fishermen were fishing and Christ said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They dropped their nets and they followed him. This man's not doing it. But it doesn't mean he's damned in his soul. The cross, he mentions, take up the cross. They don't know, they don't understand Christ is going to the cross to save us from our sins. But nowhere in the New Testament has God promised to make the believer's life easy and comfortable if we obey him. God does not say in the New Testament, if you obey me, I'm going to make your life wonderful. He did say something like that to the Jews in the Old Testament. You follow my commandments, I will bless your harvest. I will bless the fruit of your womb. I will bless you if you stay with me. And it didn't work overall. But in the New Testament, it's take up your cross. Okay, that didn't work. Let's try this one. Verse 22, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. His wealth, in his case, his wealth cost him service to Christ. It could be something else. Maybe with you it's not wealth. Maybe it's just, you're just lazy. I don't know. Maybe there's something else that's getting in the way. A hobby. Maybe it's your family. Maybe you're too into your family to have any time left for Christ. Maybe it's your career. You're too into your career. to. Maybe you're bashful or shy. Whatever it is, you've got to get rid of that. Whatever's stopping you from serving, you've got to get, get it out of the way. This is what the story is about. Augustine. Augustine was very articulate in the days before the Roman Catholic Church really got bad. And Augustine said, Unjustly is anything loved which is from him if he be forsaken for it. If God blesses you with wealth and you don't and 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 you let that get in the way of serving God, that's unjust. You're committing a crime with God. This young man, he had come so excited, he just ran in front of Christ and you know, just good teacher. But his priorities were not in the right order. He had something between him and serving the Lord. And that's where the conversation went. 
Had he just said, all these I have done for my youth, thank you very much. That would have been it. Uh, unless God, you know, <laughs> called him out on something else. From him, uh, wealth made him, for him, wealth made him unavailable. He went away sorrowful, came running excited, left sorrowful. Demand was more than he anticipated. We know something about that. We, we are anticipating something and it's something not what we expected. Doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means we may have been caught off guard. He was, and he didn't recover well. Not at this day. Who knows what happened afterward? I believe we'll see him in heaven. I'm not, again, uh, looking to bulldoze him into hell because of this exchange. He says, for he had great possessions. No sin in that. A lot of Bible characters had great Boaz was rich, for example. Abraham was rich. Solomon was filthy rich. Uh, so, um, there's nothing wrong with the possessions. It's what do you do with it? He was not ready to break free. Another Augustine quote. Since I pulled up my Augustine file, I look for a few more. Because I am not full of you, I am a burden to myself. It's well said. That's what this, this man, young man could say when he got home, when he prayed on his knees. And so before we rush to judge this man, we must ask ourselves, what would I have done if Christ asked me to part with something that was precious to me, to go serve him? Would I do that? Because Christ, he asked us to depart from sin to come serve him, but not things, direct, not directly. They will come if we come follow him, of course. And so I don't rush to judge him. And I'm a little cautious about someone who smugly condemns this man in regard. Yeah, well, he's still going to hell. <laughs> so, mm, boy, I hope I don't mess up around you. Uh, anyway, uh, not all sins tempt us. Uh, money does not really do it for me. I mean, I, money's a good servant, but it's a vicious master. And, uh, but, but always, with all of us, there's at least one prevailing sin that really does hound us. At least one. Some of you may have more than one because you're greedy. That's a joke. It's, it's a funny joke, actually. You should be holding your belly. He's so greedy, he has more sins than everybody else because he's greedy. All right, I'm pushing it, and, and, and you think it's embarrassing me, but I, this is on. It's on now. <laughs> so I'm taking it. <laughs> so let's summarize this. This was a man hungry for God. He ran in front of Jesus and said, you know, good, good teacher. You know, he just was devoted here in fulfilling the law. He was devoted to fulfilling the law. He had nothing else at this time. We have the New Testament grace, and we have so much more. Well, Jesus told him what to do, and his answer, he affirmed, I, I have done this. Again, Matthew 19, 20, the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Man knew there was more to it. This couldn't be it. Even in his 30s, he knew there was more. And the church proves this all the time. There's so many people that love the Lord. They're good Christians. But again, they are letting something get in the way of serving them. And so someone else fills their... You know, one, one thing I've known that Christ will do to get someone to serve is say to them, fine, I'll get somebody else. Man, who wants to hear that? I don't want to hear that. Get in the mood. I'm done. I'm sick of this. Okay, I'll get somebody else. No, 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 you won't. <laughs> 
<laughs> we're built that way. And Christ says, okay, I can use that. I'm not, you know, you, you messed up that way, but I can use it. So <laughs> Jesus told him what to do. He, he fulfills it by faith. But he says, but if you want a higher level, this is what you've got to do. And it is explicitly stated that Jesus loved him, looking at him. Nothing can undo that statement. It is a sublime, simple statement that the Lord loved on him because the Lord saw that that he loved God. Just had some issues that he had to work through. And who hasn't? Everybody that comes to Christ has got something to work through. And it's a rolling thing. You know, you may have something in your 20s, and then by the time you get to your 30s, you got something else. And then you get to your 40s, the thing that was in your 20s is back again. Oh, the cat came back. He wouldn't stay away. (laughs) So be ready for that kind of stuff. Don't be so, oh, look, I'm doing it again. Yeah, surprise. Well, anyway... uh, the kingdom of service was primary. But it goes on that Jesus is going to take this moment. Let me expand on this. Verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Because it is. He says, it's difficult. Boys, while I've got your attention, you see this young rich man? Wealth gets in the way. It creates an ally with the world. And that causes friction between the spirit and the flesh that... You otherwise would not have. Paul said money is a root of all evil. And, you know, when you you get it, you start, you you get this mindset, fine, I'll buy another one. And the dependency on God begins to diminish because you become self-sufficient in contrast to the little children that are totally dependent on God. And so we have to take, receive and say, okay, God has blessed me with this. I'll get to a, pro- well, Proverbs 10, 22, the blessings of Yahweh makes one rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. So if God blesses you with wealth, then you don't have to feel guilty. That's what the proverb is saying. It's a blessing. But what are you going to do with that blessing? Are you going to make it serve the Lord? Are you going to make it serve yourself? And that tail wags the dog. you got a problem. So Jesus looked at his disciples and he brings this up. He does not say, this man is doomed and going to hell because of his money. He says, it's just difficult for those with money. Um, we're not told that Jesus rebuked him, which he would have, if this were such an issue of the soul, he, I think he, he certainly would have made that painfully clear. Well, verse 24, And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. So this is what you, you know, one of those two birds with one stone. The rich man comes up to him, Christ deals with that. But then he understands that his disciples think, as people did at that time, if you had money, then you were good with God. That is the problem that Jesus is bringing to the surface. It was contrary to the Jewish concept of divine approval at the time. And this is from Deuteronomy 28, where God says, you do this, I will bless you. Well, in time, they twisted that. You mean if I acquire wealth, I'm good with God. Never mind obedience. I've got the wealth. That's the proof. I don't need to obey. I've got the wealth. And that is where the big problem came in. They were ignoring obedience to the Lord, but the, 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 the die was cast in the minds of people. When Job, it's even spilled into the Gentile world. Job's accusers said, Job, for you to lose your fortune, you must be really bad. 
That's the whole argument of, the, of his friends against him. And Job would not back down. And thank God, he, he, Job, Job uh, even told God, I, I'm not going to give up my integrity. I see it this way. I can't lie to you and tell you I see it another way. This is how I see it. And God dealt with Job a little bit too, but not like the friends. He told the friends, you better go to Job so he can pray for you. I'm about to deal with you. And they were scurrying over there. The little camels were pooped. Anyway, um, Jewish thinking summarized this mindset this way. Whom the Lord loves, he makes rich. Sounds like one of those prosperity teachers, doesn't it? Uh, that is a, a hellish teaching. That uh, if, if you're poor, God does not, is not finding favor with you. Uh, Jesus said, the Son of Man has nowhere to hang his, to lay his head. I have no home. Foxes have whole bird, holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of where <clears throat> man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, he didn't have any money. Largely, many of the women contributed to him financially. Well, he says, children, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. He's emphasizing this. He says it twice. He's very serious about this. It is good to have uh, things money can buy so long as you don't lose those things money can't buy, which is your salvation, which is righteousness, which is love and truth, and all of the attributes that come with pursuing the Christ-like life. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What if you put a lot of grease on that needle? Do you force them through? Getting into heaven through wealth, this is what he is saying. Getting into heaven through wealth is not possible. You can't buy your way in. Now, there are those that will take this. Well, there was a little gate and a door on the gate, and there's no proof of that. That came out of the 1800s. This is, this is best to take just as he said it. In fact, there's a Persian proverb, the same thing, but instead of a camel, it's an elephant. Well, the largest animal in Israel was really um, uh, the camel. And so the Jews adopted it and said it's easier for a camel to go through. And they wanted to say that something was impossible. And so those <clears throat> interpretations about there was a little gate called the eye of the needle and you had to take the burden off the donkey to get uh, That's just not necessary and not it. Verse 26 and they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Again, because they had this mindset. If you're rich, you've got to be good. Uh, if you are following Yahweh, of course. Uh, they won't, wouldn't apply this to a pagan. If a pagan was rich, they wouldn't say, well, he's good because God's blessed him. <clears throat> but prosperity uh, is not attached to salvation, not financial or material prosperity. And despite God's blunt denial of this wrong idea, the teaching still persists. There are still people who think that if God, if you have money, God loves you. And if you don't have a lot of money, you're not loved so much. Uh, what are, anyway, uh, it takes the whole scripture to make a whole Christian and not fragments of the scripture. And that's how they promote their, their lives. They take, they, they take the piece, they cherry pick. Verse 27 they don't only cherry pick, but that's one of the big tactics. Verse 27, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, 
but not with God. For with God, all things are impossible. Well, can't that be said about anybody? Isn't that true about anybody? It's impossible for a poor person to be saved without God. It is not possible. But these men needed a special class because, again, their theology was borrowed. What I mean by borrowed theology, they learned things about God from hearing somebody else without ever investigating it themselves. And then they repeated it. We see this all the time. We see people say, God helps those who help themselves. So show me that in the Bible. There's truth in it, but not the whole truth. And uh, <clears throat> borrowed theology is something we want to be careful of. And that's why you bring your Bibles to church and do your own research and have your devotion time and your study time. Salvation is beyond morality. There are atheists that are moralists. They believe in, you know, human decency. But they're going to hell because they're rejecting Christ, willfully rejecting Christ. So it's got to be more to it than that. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. Nobody's going to stand up in God's face and demand to be in heaven. Yeah, I've earned my way. You better open them doors. We're going to open doors, all right. But they go south. It is alarming to hear people suppose that their sins and their faults are somehow excused by a holy God just because they compare themselves in that relative goodness compared to the other guy. God says this about man's morality without him. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We will fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The great prophet Isaiah said, my, on my best day, I'm not good enough for God. And he, this is emphatic language in the Hebrew. When he says filthy rags, it's a very emphatic word. He's saying it was really bad compared to the purity of God. That is the context. And uh, salvation, of course, is whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. My point for reading that verse is this. Those who have a borrowed theology and are wrong about Christ, if they're going to get right about Christ, it's going to be through what we say to them and how we live around them. We have an active role in the salvation of souls. And to disagree with God is to not walk with God. We agree with God, though we may fail to carry it out all the time, we agree with him. Verse 28, we're about done, but we've got, we'll make it. We're going to make this. Uh, then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Well, Peter, Peter picked up on this. You, you, you told him to leave his wealth and come follow you. Well, you told us the same thing, and we did do this. Uh, so we're good, right? And the Lord does not directly say to Peter, yes, Peter. He does not directly say that. He doesn't have to say that. And that's significant because we're so quick to question our own salvation, which is an act of faithlessness. If you've done something wrong and you can repent and you're working to fix it, God understands that. 
versus the person that thinks that uh, their sin is just tolerant. You know, it's okay. I don't really have to deal with it. That's something other. So, <coughs> this, is, this is allergies. Somebody's wearing pollen. Would you please stand up? <coughs> Verse 29. I'm giving uh, his productions a lot of work to edit the sermon for radio, just to keep them on their toes. Hi, Josh. Anyway... Back to verse uh, 29. So Jesus answered and said, Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. We all see that curveball, don't we? He's like rolling along apples, oranges, brick. I mean, what is, the, what is with the persecutions? Could you just like skip that for another time? If anybody's thinking, you know what? I'm just going to follow the Lord to get these goodies. And then he throws in this to kind of straighten everybody out. Uh, <clears throat> this verse is about dedication of the life. It's not about uh, just in that salvation only. It has to do with going forward and leaving behind things that are in the way of answering the call. Serving Christ has its rewards. And it also has the opportunity for, for persecution. Spiritual rewards are primary. He says, or wife, singular, which is a slap in the face against polygamy. And there are still those out there that are trying to use the Bible to support polygamy. And not just the Mormons. So, uh, you can't. That's one verse. He would have said, or wives, if uh, there was some tolerance for that. Father, in verse 30, is omitted because we have our Father in heaven. And he says, with the persecutions, of course, blessed are you when they revile you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you. And here it comes. Falsely, for my name's sake. The early church was accused of all sorts of things. They're meeting, you know, at night because they won't want anybody to see that they're cannibals. That's why they drink the blood and eat the flesh. <coughs> oh, look. <coughs> all right. That was dumb. But a lot of fun. We're almost out of here. So uh, the early church was accused of these things, but they were false. And, of course, that's a very important thing. Uh, now we come to verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Notice that he said many and not all. It is a proverb. It is not an absolute. Sometimes the first will be first. And uh, it's helpful to remember that. I think there's been a lot in this chapter to consider. For me... I like that whole part about the relative goodness versus the absolute goodness of God because I think that it needs to be stressed more when we speak to unbelievers. Yeah, you might be good next to him, but it's not next to him you're going to be judged. It's next to the Jesus Christ of the, of the Bible. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, you challenge us always because we need to be challenged. You're always looking to develop us, to mature us. We are your workmanship. We are the poetry through the lessons 
given in your word, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and all of us who love you invite you to have your way with us because we know that you are patient and kind and we know that you are also very serious. And so have your way with us, we invite you, O Lord Jesus, we who believe. If you do not believe in Christ and you are very conscious that you are not ready to meet God, if you were to die today, you don't know where you would go. That is inexcusable. You should know where you're going. Because God has told us that there are two options. Heaven or hell. You can be with him or you can be forever separated from him. And that separation is not something you're going to survive. You're not going to do well there. Otherwise, he would not have died a horrible death to keep us from avoiding a horrible judgment. If you would like to open your heart to Jesus Christ and receive him now, that you would know what your eternal state would be, that it would no longer be a question mark there as to where you're going when you leave this life. To make this prayer in earnest, you have to mean it. You have to at least, at the very least, sincerely want it. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner broken your commandments and I come to you and I ask you to forgive me there's no one else who is holy enough to forgive me good enough to forgive me there's no one else who died for me in my place taking my judgment on me on the cross except you and I come to you and I ask you to forgive me I give my life to you right here right now from this day forward I ask that you would be the Lord over my life and the Savior of my soul. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer, whether in the church or watching, listening online, may they not be ashamed of this confession when invited to share it with one of the pastors so that from the very beginning they can stand up and be uh, very clear that they've asked you into their hearts. And these things we commit to your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.